We're in uh, Matthew chapter 10, and, and so as we look at this this morning, we want to uh, just uh, read uh, for you. We've been looking at the 12 apostles, and we've worked our way through each one of those, and there's CDs in the back if you missed any of that. Um, but we want to pick up in verse 5 this morning of Matthew chapter 10, and we're going to be looking at understanding the mission of Jesus. Uh, one thing that Jesus did is when he left, he passed his mission on to his apostles, his disciples. And so if we don't understand what the mission of Jesus is, uh, how are we going to be doing it today? And there's several principles here in this text for effective ministry, and uh, we want to read it, and, uh, and then we'll look at it a little more closely. Beginning in chapter, five, uh, chapter 10, verse 5 of Matthew. These twelve Jesus sent out and commanded them, saying, Do not go into the way of the Gentiles, and do not enter a city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Provide neither gold nor silver nor copper in your money belt, nor bag for your journey, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor staffs, for a worker is worthy of his food. Now, whatever city or town you enter, inquire who is uh, who in it is worthy, and stay there till you go out. And when you go out into a household, greet it. And if the household is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And whoever will not receive you nor hear your words. When you depart from that house or city, shake off the dust from your feet. Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the days of judgment than for that city. This is the first time the Lord sends out his disciples. He's called them, he's been training them, and now he's ready to send them out. And there's some profound truth here that we want to look at and we want to uh, just kind of look at a couple this morning. But one of the things that we, we see here is that Jesus passed off this ministry onto these 12 men. And remember, as we went through uh, the apostles, we realized that they were just that. They were men. They weren't anything special. They weren't saints. One was a tax collector. Another one was going to betray Christ. They were normal, everyday people with a special calling upon their life by the Lord himself. They had the raw material that God could take and use, and we all have that same material that God can take and use for his glory. It's not so much the gifts and the talents and everything that they had. They were just fishermen for the most part. But they were willing to be used by God. And basically, Matthew puts together all this evidence about the claim that Christ is the Messiah in the first several chapters of Matthew. He is shown through Christ's genealogy. He's shown by his birth, through the homage people paid him, the Eastern kings, even his threat to Herod, his preaching, his teaching, all these things, the miracles, the powers, the words, everything that Christ did attested that he was the Messiah, the Son of God. And as we came to the close of chapter 9, we began to pull together these responses that people had from the truth that Christ was putting out there. Example in Matthew chapter 9, verse 31, it says, They, when they were departed, spread abroad his fame in all that country. See, one of the things that happened 
from the tremendous credentials that Christ put out there in front of the people that his fame began to spread. People began to hear about him and they began to flock to him. Another thing happened in verse 31. It says the Pharisees said that he cast out demons through the prince of demons. I mean, can you imagine such a thing? Calling the Lord, the Messiah, the chosen one of God, the Savior of the world. Demon possessed. Even Satan possessed is what they were saying. He was literally indwelt by Satan. That's what they concluded, the religious leaders of his day. And so whether it was for good or bad, his fame spread everywhere. And yet in verse 35, it says, Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in the synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. And then the transition occurs there in verse 36. One day he's up on a hillside and he looks down and he sees all these people who have been basically abused by the religious leaders. Pharisees have basically taken the word of God, the law of God, and they've concocted their own law, their their own uh, oral law to make everybody feel good. If you do this on the Sabbath, if you don't carry a stick that's this big, this far, well, then you're okay, then you're righteous. But if you do this, you do... And Jesus came, and they had all these rules and regulations that they had to live under, and Jesus came and he blew the whole thing apart. You remember, he kept on saying, you've heard it said, but I tell you, And it it kind of just shattered their self-righteousness. And they got a little upset. That they were abusing their religious power on their people. And when Jesus saw that, it says that he saw the multitudes there and he was moved with compassion. Because they were faint or they were beaten down by all this religious garbage that the religious leaders had piled on their shoulders. beaten, they were bruised. Literally, that term means that they were almost torn apart. They were scattered. It says that they were like sheep without a what? Shepherd. Their so-called religious establishment wasn't providing the needed leadership, spiritual leadership that they needed. They just dealt with all the legalism. when he looked out and he said, truly the harvest is plenteous, but the labors are few. And we talked about how he's talking about the harvest is the judgment of God coming. That's that's what's coming. And God puts a sickle to those fields. Judgment will come. And he said, I can't do this by myself, basically. There's, There's too much to be done. And he asked the disciples to pray for more workers. It's funny, when you start praying for something like that, God moves your prayers. It's like praying for your lost neighbor, you know, across the street. Lord, just please, Lord, just send somebody to reach him. You know, send somebody to give the gospel to him. And and, and all of a sudden, you pray that for a couple days, a couple weeks, all of a sudden, God's tapping you on the shoulder saying, what's wrong with you? (laughs) Why don't you make your way across the, the road and share the gospel with them? Why do you think you're here? And that's exactly what happened to the disciples. They were praying for God to send forth workers. Little did they know they were the workers. (laughs) They were it. And that's in Matthew chapter 5. He says, these 12 Jesus sent forth. And we've had a privilege to introduce ourselves to those guys over the past several weeks. They're in a process of training. Jesus is molding them and sharing with them. and, And now it's time to send them out. 
Not finally. He's sending them out and he's going to call them back. When he finally leaves the earth, he sends them out permanently. But this is kind of an uh, internship kind of a deal. Jesus is training them. And he says, okay, now you go put to practice what I've just taught you. Then come back and we'll talk about it. But it's time to send them out. After the day of Pentecost, they will be sent forth. But this is kind of a missionary training, kind of a short-term mission for them. Probably just a couple weeks they went out on their own. And he sent them out to get a taste of what it would be like. They were the original missionaries, you might say. They spent time with Jesus, and then they went out and they told people what Jesus told them to tell them. And I think that he's really, he really wants us to have that same kind of commitment to going out and sharing the word of Christ. Jesus saw the harvest, and he called for laborers to go and to warn men of the inevitable judgment that's coming. That's what we're called to do by God as believers. So, as we come to Matthew chapter 10, verse 5, he's sending them out on this this short-term mission, you might say. And it's kind of an interesting portion of Scripture because it's kind of like you're looking through a telescope in a way you don't see a lot of things. And then it becomes more uh, exact to what he wants you to see. And it's, 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 it unfolds as we go through it in the next couple of weeks. We'll see this. But there's some principles here that will deal with ministry that will deal very basically with how to have effective ministry. And this chapter, by the way, just as far as introductory material here still, it falls into five sections. The first section begins at verse 5 and it ends with verse 15. And it ends with the statement, Verily I say to you, if you look at that. And that section talks about the task of a, a, a minister or a missionary or, or a Christian that's going out and serving. The second section goes from verse basically 23, and it ends with verily I say unto you. It goes from verse 23, 15 to 23 there. And the third section goes from the end of verse 23 to 42. And once again, he ends it with verily I say unto you. And so it's kind of three sections here. But in verses 5 to 15, we see that there's some effective principles for ministry. And we want to see what they are. Sometimes, you know, people, the world gets a different idea of what Christians are because there's people out there representing themselves as Christians, and they aren't. <laughs> all you got to do is turn on the TV and see some of these crazy evangelists that are around there asking for your money all the time. Uh, you know, things like that. It, 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 does, it skews your idea of what Jesus Christ, who He is, and what He's all about. And so we want to understand today the mission, truly, that Christ had on His heart to give to these guys. If we're going to be sent out from Christ to touch the world with the reality of Christ, we must listen carefully to what He told them to do, or we could miss it. And so the first principle here for effective ministry, number one, is a divine commission. A divine commission. He begins there in verse 5, and he says, These twelve Jesus sent forth and what? Commanded them. All right? That's a commission. These guys didn't volunteer. Interesting. Churches are always calling for more volunteers. Oh, we need volunteers in the nursery. Oh, we need volunteers in Sunday school. We need volunteers in the kitchen. We need volunteers. We need volunteers. These guys didn't volunteer. 
They were willing to go. Christ didn't act against their own will, but they were called. They were commissioned. Much like even the prophet Jeremiah. Remember in Jeremiah chapter 1, it says, Before I formed you, I ordained you. That's what God said to Jeremiah. See, the disciples were sovereignly called by God. And they were given a divine commission. They were sent. They were dispatched. They were under orders. My son-in-law's in the Navy. When the Navy, you know, his phone rings and says, hey, the boat's going out. You need to be on it. He can't say, oh, well, my little girl has her birthday and, or it's Mother's Day. He can't. They, they don't care about that. His allegiance, his loyalty belongs to the U.S. Navy. They own it. So if they want to take him out for two months or two years, they can do it. There's no recourse. So the disciples here were under orders. See, it's, it's very important to understand if you're going to be involved in any kind of ministry at all, the very first thing that you have to understand is that God has sent you to do it. <laughs> if you're just out there on your own, man, you, you, that's, that's pretty scary. It's an old black preacher who said to a young pastor one time, this young pastor was in the ministry, and he's just very prideful about his position as the pastor of the church. And this old black pastor turned to him and says, Was you sent, or did you just went? <laughs> See, it's important to understand that, first of all, you have to know that God sent you before you go. They had a divine commission. In Mark chapter 6, if you turn over there in verse 7, it's kind of a corollary passage there, a comparative passage, and it says that Jesus sent them out by two, two by two. And you might say, well, why did he do that? Why did Jesus send them out two by two? I think, for one reason, they were companions. You know, you go out, sometimes, you know, ministry can be lonely. It's good to have somebody by your side. For another, there'd be great strength to one another in times of temptation. There's something about having a pal. Okay, Ecclesiastes talks about that. If you fall in a ditch and you don't have anybody to help you out, you're going to be in a world of hurt. For another, they could relieve one another. He sent them out by two so that, you know, one person wasn't always going to preaching, the healing, and all that stuff, because that's what they did. They did an incredible amount of ministry in a short period of time. So he sent them out by two. Plus, the Lord knew that in the Jewish culture that the testimony of anyone had to be confirmed by two or three witnesses. So if I was going out by myself and said, oh yeah, I got to this one city and I, I healed all these people and all this stuff happened and God did great miracles and I came back and I told everybody and nobody was there to testify to that, they could say, yeah, you're lying. But see, if you have two or three witnesses, that's going to establish a fact in that culture. So he sent them out by two. Probably only lasted a couple weeks, as he said. But these apostles were ambassadors for Christ. They were officially sent. They were in the same category as Paul, who said, God has given me the ministry as a stewardship in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. It's a trust that's given to you. And it was such a serious matter for Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 16. He says, Woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. Literally, curse me if I don't preach. That's what he said. Because he had been given a divine commission. 
like, you know, my son-in-law can't go AWOL. He can't go off and do his own thing. It's the same thing. We can't, we're not called just to go out and do our own thing. We're called into ministry. It's a serious matter. And yeah, there's different levels of that. But every Christian is called to be a participant in ministry to some degree. There's no spectators in the kingdom of God. We're all to be participants. So in their case, their commissioning was direct by them. You remember with, with Matthew, he walked up to the tax booth. Matthew was just sitting there collecting taxes. And he says, you, follow me. What did Matthew do? He got up and he followed him. <laughs> and that's how he handled most of them. He said, you follow me, you follow me. And he just pointed to them and they did it. Because they obviously saw who he was. You didn't have to put fleeces out. You say, oh, wait, wait, you want me to leave my taxes? I mean, do you know how much money I make here every day? Matthew didn't say, well, wait, you know, Lord, let me pray about this first before, you know, I just follow you. I mean, how's your ministry, how long is this thing going to last? Anyway, I mean, I, this is a, uh, you know, my career. You're expecting me just to walk away from this? I mean, he just grabbed them and he took them and he said, you're following me, let's go. Now, with us, it's, a lot more indirect than that. A lot of times, people who are going into ministry in a full-time basis or giving up everything else to, to serve the Lord in a full-time basis, sometimes people will ask, how do you know if you're called to ministry? How do you know if you're, if you're called to forsake everything else and just do ministry? There's three types of criteria, basically. You look at, first of all, there's a strong desire. Psalmist says, do you delight in the Lord? He'll give you the desire of your heart. See, I believe God planted that desire in my heart almost the day I was saved. I didn't understand in what capacity. I had no idea what I would be doing. I just thought, you know what? I just learned something that saved me, a truth that I was a sinner and I needed the grace of God. And I wasn't going to find that grace through any one church or anything like that. It had nothing to do with that. It had with the fact of me going to God personally and saying, hey, be merciful to me, a sinner. I'm sorry. I need your son to cover my sin. And when I cried out and God saved me, it wasn't like I saw a light show and, boy, you know, fire crying, all this stuff. No. I didn't cry, nothing. It wasn't emotional for me. It was a matter-of-fact decision. I just said, wow, this does, this just makes sense. Once I realized that I was a sinner and I needed God's grace, you know, going for the grace wasn't a big deal. Now, get me to the point where I thought I needed God's grace. That was another story because I was always comparing myself to my brothers who were really, really, really bad. <laughs> and I would always say, well, I'm not as bad as him. I'm not as bad as that one. That one had to get married. You know, all these things. And in my Catholic upbringing, all these things just kind of ran through my head that I was a good person. And so when somebody showed me in the Bible that there's none righteous, no, not one, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, it doesn't matter who you are. That just, the light went on. said, I need this. Almost immediately, I wanted to share the gospel with other people. I didn't know how. I was very shy. I still am very shy. But I didn't know how God would do that. But that's what I wanted to do. 1 Timothy 3.1 says, If a man desires the office of a bishop, he desires a good thing. See, it's a word to Timothy is that men will desire even full-time ministry. And 
and career sense. Secondly, I think there's a confirmation of the church. Some people say, well, I'm, I'm called to preach. And other people say, <laughs> brother, you ain't called to preach. But there's a confirmation. There has to be a confirmation of the church. And that's what Paul was saying to Timothy when he said, neglect not the gift that God has given you, which was given you by the prophecy and the laying on of the hands of the elders. There's a confirmation of those around you in the church. Finally, the ministry is made possible by circumstances. There's opportunity for ministry there. 1 Corinthians 16.9, Paul says, A great door and effectual is open onto me. So you look at the desire, you look at confirmation, you look at the affirmation and the opportunity, and you know what? If, if God has given you a green light and all those things, then maybe He's calling you to, to a deeper sense of ministry. To give up everything else and just to serve Him. We're all called to ministry to some degree. You understand that. But God does put a special calling on certain people to carry out His divine plan. doesn't mean those people are special. Well, anyway, they're not. <laughs> Just like everybody else. So they were called in a very immediate, external way. We're not necessarily called that way. We're called more internally, you know, uh, through the, the ways that I just explained. But it's interesting, this word back to Matthew 10, where he says there that he commanded them. Paragello in the Greek. It demands a lot of attention that we look at this word because it's important to understand what it means. I mean, basically, boil it all down, it means to give orders. <laughs> That's what it means. He commanded them. He gave them orders. And it's kind of a multifaceted word. It's used as a military word. A superior giving an order to an inferior soldier. It's kind of an aggressive, definitive statement of absolute behavior requires obedience. In the military, you can't say, hey, I, you know, I really don't feel like going over that hill. Sorry, sir. You can't do that. They give you an order, you do it. Bottom line, that's it. Secondly, it was used in legal terms, the same word. In summoning a man to court, I remember when I was with the DA's office and I would go out and I would give people subpoenas. And some of these people were nice, some of these people weren't. Some of these people were nice the first time, the second time they were nice. But I remember I always had to make sure I was serving the right person. And I always had to tell them, you know, this is a legal document. Your, your uh, attendance in court is necessary. If you're not there, they will come and arrest you. They couldn't say, well, you know, I got work that way. It didn't matter. If you got that subpoena in their hand, that was a binding commitment. They had to be there. Or they would literally issue a warrant for their arrest. So it was used in legal terms. It was also used as an ethical concept. Aristotle teaches morals and ethics to his students. And the idea is they become binding on the basis of integrity of the individual. In other words, if you know something is wrong to do, the Bible says that if you do it, it's what? It's sin. So when you know something ethically is right and you don't do it, all right, then it's wrong because you're bound ethically by that. It's also a, a word of technique when you do something a certain way. has the idea of grammar or oratory or rules of 
literary composition. You, you arrange words in a certain way so people can understand what you're saying. If you do it in a different way, it's not going to make any sense. And lastly, it's a medical term. When you go to the doctor and the doctor says, okay, here's what's wrong with you, this very seldom happens. Usually, well, we don't know, you know, but if they by chance really know what's wrong with you, and they say, here, we're going to give you this medicine, you take this medicine three times a day, and then, you know, in a week you'll be better. You know, how many of us have taken the antibiotics? Maybe we've had something, you know, an infection, whatever, and, and we take the antibiotics and, and we get better. And the doctor says, whatever you do, make sure you finish these out. You've got to finish them out. And, you know, seven days of antibiotics and day four, you're feeling great. Gosh, I don't need the antibiotics anymore. What happens? This stuff comes back even worse than it was before sometimes because you didn't follow the doctor's orders. That's what happens. That's the kind of word. It's a command. It's something that you don't have a choice in deciding whether or not you're going to listen. In Luke 5, 14, he uses it to instruct a leper. In, in Luke 8, 29, he commands an evil spirit. In Luke 8, 56, he used it to instruct uh, Jairus. In, in, in Luke 9, 21, he used it to command his disciples. In Acts, he's used, he uses it of the Sanhedrin when they command Peter and John to stop preaching. Remember that? Same word. In Acts 15, of the Pharisees, when they command to observe the ceremonial law, Paul uses it when he gives instructions to Timothy. It's a very common word in the New Testament. It is just a word that means that we are bound to respond. You can't just not respond. You can't just sit there and do nothing. So here, these men, these 12 men, are commissioned by the Lord Himself. And you have no choice but to respond because you're a soldier and he's the commander. Because you're in court and he's the judge. Because you're the one who lives a life and he's the one who sets the moral standard. That's just how it works. I wrote this in the bulletin today. I don't know who wrote it. The author was unknown. But it says, I'm a soldier in the army of God. The Lord Jesus Christ is my commanding officer. The Holy Bible is my code of conduct. Faith, prayer, and the Word are my weapons of warfare. I have been taught by the Holy Spirit, trained by experience, tried in adversity, and tested by fire. I am a volunteer in, his, in this army, and I am enlisted for eternity. I will either retire in this army at the rapture or die in this army. But I will not get out sell out, be talked out, or pushed out. I am faithful, reliable, capable, and dependable. If my God needs me, I am there. If He needs me in Sunday school to teach the children, work with the youth, help adults, or just sit and learn, He can use me because I am there. I am a soldier. I am not a baby. I do not need to be pampered, petted, primmed up, pumped up, picked up, or pepped up. I am a soldier. No one has to call me, remind me, write me, visit me, entice me, or lure me. I am a soldier. I am not a wimp. I am in place, saluting my king, obeying his orders, praising his name, and building his kingdom. No one has to send me flowers, gifts, food, cards, candy, or give me handouts. I do not need to be cuddled, cradled, cared for, or catered to. I am committed. I cannot have my feelings hurt bad enough to turn me around. 
I cannot be discouraged enough to turn me aside. I cannot lose enough to cause me to quit. When Jesus called me into this army, I had nothing. If I end up with nothing, I will still come out ahead. I will win. My God has and will continue to supply all of my needs. I am more than a conqueror. I will always triumph. I can do all things through Christ. Devils cannot defeat me. People cannot delusion me. Weather cannot weary me. Sickness cannot stop me. Battles cannot beat me. Money cannot buy me. Governments cannot silence me. And hell cannot handle me. I am a soldier. Even death cannot destroy me. For when my commander calls me from this battlefield, he will promote me to captain and allow me to rule with him. I am a soldier in the army, and I am marching, claiming victory. I will not give up. I will not turn around. I am a soldier marching heaven bound. Here I stand. I will not turn around. Will you stand with me? What a powerful statement. I don't know who wrote that. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about a divine commission that says, you know what? Everything else falls by the wayside. So many times today we see people in ministry who make ministry, the emphasis of ministry, all about their creativity, all about their innovation. One guy on TV, you know, he... He's had, you know, Ferraris on his stage. He taught a message from his bed in his pajamas on a stage. He's done all crazy kind of things. And you wonder, what are they thinking about? He doesn't want any of that. He wants your obedience. Someone once said, the preacher is not a chef. He's just a waiter. And all God wants you to do is deliver the meal. He'll make it. You just deliver it without messing it up. See, we're all servants under that divine commission. And you say, well, that sounds kind of heavy. I mean, that's pretty serious. Yes, it is. That's what being a Christian is. Being a Christian isn't just some social thing. You go to church on Sunday and fulfill your obligation, and, and that's it. That's not being a Christian. Being a Christian is when you come to the end of your rope and you realize there's no other hope but Christ to forgive your sin. And you cry out to Him for forgiveness. And He saves you. He changes you. He transforms you into something brand new. That's what Jesus is doing here with the twelve. He binds them into a commission ready to say, woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. And we're all commissioned, in a sense, as believers. Those who put their faith or trust in Christ are commissioned. They're given a command by God to go and to represent Him to a lost and dying world. It's very clear. Some people are commissioned more officially sense of a pastor or an evangelist or a missionary. But we're all commissioned, beloved. An effective missionary, an effective 
servant, an effective apostle, an effective Christian, an effective disciple realizes that he's under divine orders. This isn't just something that, you know, oh, I don't know if I feel like going or, or not. You know, beloved, let me tell you, there's a lot of Sundays, well, not a lot, but there's some Sundays that, trust me, I'd rather stay home and sleep. I'm just being open and honest before you here. You know, just stuff's going on. You just, oh, I just don't want to face it. I just don't want to feel like God has to work today. And you know what? If I wasn't under a divine command to come and do what I do every week, you wouldn't see me as much as you do. That's just my nature. I think that's why God, as soon as he saved me, he gave me that commission in my heart. You know, I don't know what you're going to do, what your plans are in criminology or police work or whatever, but here's what my plan is for you. <laughs> you want me to go into ministry? I don't know anything about it. I mean, to tell you how much I didn't know about ministry. In my own mind, on the probably the second or third day after I was saved, I thought, you know what? I mean, I toyed around with the idea. I was an altar boy in a Catholic church for 17, 18 years. And, and, and uh, not 17, 18 years, but you know, probably five or six years. But I've been going to Catholic church my whole life. And, and I thought, you know what? I'm, I've been part of the Catholic church. I never heard this message before. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go become a priest. And I'm going to share this message with all the Catholic people. And the pastor said, well, do you think that'd be honest? Well, what do you mean? You know, well, aren't you kind of... Kind of flying under the radar there, <laughs> you know, a little bit, uh, you know. And I thought, well, and he encouraged me to go to Bible school, and that's what I ended up doing. But I knew right from the beginning God wanted me to do something with God. And it's, it's, it's a divine commission. We all have it when we come to Christ. We all have that burden in our heart. We need to tell somebody about it. Secondly, second principle, quickly. marked by a central objective. All right, a central objective. Not only a divine commission, but effective ministry is marked by a central objective. In other words, if you're going to be effective in serving God in any capacity, whether it's with your life or part-time, whatever you want to do, okay, there has to be a very clear and focused um, objective. Once again, look at verse 5. He commanded them, and he says in, in verse 5 there, Go not into the way of the Gentiles, and into any city of the Samaritans enter not. So he gives them very clear parameters in which to carry out this command. He just didn't say, hey, go everywhere. No, he said, you know what? I don't want you to go to the Gentiles, and I don't want you to go into a city of filled with Samaritans. And in the original language, these are what they call possessive genitives which means don't go into a road belonging to the Gentiles or even into a city belonging to the Samaritans. Don't go near Gentiles or Samaritans, basically. You might say, well, gee, you know, where, whatever happened to God is love. I mean, here this guy's got the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he's telling them don't go to certain people? What's he got against them? Is this just a Jewish gospel? Is it limited? Well, it is here. It is here. Verse 6, he says, But instead, don't go to these people. You go only to the what? The lost sheep of the house of Israel. You go to the Jews first. 
And only in this in this case, you only go to the Jews. Don't talk to Gentiles and Samaritans, nobody. Now, you have to understand, in the context, this is not a permanent command. We don't just take the gospel to the Jewish community. It's a very narrow statement. It's limited to this time, this place, this guy saying it at this time within the plan of God. So these apostles couldn't just go out and say, oh, he's sending us out. We're just going to go do what we want. <laughs> We're going to go wherever we want. No, he couldn't do that. Ministry's never that way. Rabbi David McKenna said this, self-styled messiahs are always megalomaniacs who want to win the world and win it now. Sometimes that's not in God's plan. They make it all about them. Some people's perception of ministry is so vast that their, their, their own ministry, one commentator says, winds up being like a, a long birdbath, a mile long and only an inch deep. They just spread themselves so thinly. See, we have to focus on the narrowness of our ministry. You say, well, doesn't God care for the Gentiles? Doesn't God care for the Samaritans? Of course he does. Back in Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 to 12, we found that when Jesus entered Capernaum, he was approached by a centurion who was obviously a Gentile. He was a Roman soldier whose servant was sick. And Jesus responded to him. Jesus responded by healing the servant. He brought the household salvation. And he says in other places, so yeah, he cares about them, but for this point in time right now, I don't want you guys going there. I want you just to go to the lost house, the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And he says that over and over and over again. And you have to understand, the Gentiles were one thing. They were born that way. They were non-Jews. A Samaritan was a little different. They were hated by the Jewish community, because the Samaritans are half-breeds. They're half-Gentile, half-Jewish. And you have to understand, even in the time of Christ here, when he's saying, don't go near the, the Samaritans, okay, um, they kind of brought this on themselves. Twenty years before the time of Christ, the Samaritans basically went into the temple in the middle of the night during Passover, and they threw dead man's bones all over the temple, and they paraded them. And so the Jewish community just hated these people with a passion. And so there was a terrible hatred at this point. And you say, well, why did Jesus tell these guys not to go? Well, I think there are three reasons, basically. First of all, we'll call it the special place of the Jews. Some people don't like this, but the Jews were God's chosen people and are God's chosen people. And they were the ones to whom were given the covenants, the promise, the law, all this, the Old Testament, was entrusted to them. So in the line of God's plan, they were offered the kingdom first. They always were. Remember, they were approached by John the Baptist. He came and he turned to them and he said, what? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In other words, it's available. And then Jesus himself came and he said to them, once again, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He said, offer them the rule of God on earth. That's what's going to happen. Heaven has come to earth. God wants to rule. And it's in a spiritual sense, yes, at this point. But you know what? They didn't get that. So they threw the whole thing out. Had the Jewish nation embraced the Messiah, the internal and external finally would have come together. But it didn't happen. 
was in God's plan at the time. John 4.22 says salvation is of the Jews. What does that mean? It doesn't mean salvation was only for them. It means that salvation comes through them. Christ himself is Jewish. Much like Paul, even, on his missionary journeys, he would always go to the synagogue first, even though he was a missionary to Gentiles. He would always go to the synagogue first and preach the gospel, and they said, we don't want to hear it, and then he'd go to the, the Gentiles. Because if he did it the other way around, beloved, if, if he sent these apostles out and said, now, I want you to go to the land of the Samaritans and the Gentiles, and then we'll reach the Jews a little later, they never would have them even near us. Because they would feel like, ha, oh, you're around those people? No way. That's just the culture. So the Jews were always first in God's plan. Second, the special problem of the twelve, they weren't equipped to deal with the Gentiles or the Samaritans. I mean, this is a, a motley crew at best, okay? Jesus spent all his time trying to get these guys ready. Now he's sending them out. He's like, you know what? Avoid this area. Avoid that area. Just go to these people. <laughs> Just do what you know. You're, you're from this background. You'll kind of understand some of the religious things you run into if you stick with the Jewish people. Just do that. At this point, just keep the Samaritans and the Gentiles off limits. They weren't equipped for it. You know what? One thing I learned this last week, that nothing ever really cracked open the Gentile world, except when, when, when Peter, in his confrontation of one God-fearing man named Cornelius, okay, nothing ever made a dent in the Gentile world until finally Paul came along. Since he was born the tribe of Benjamin in Israel of Israel, he was zealous for the law, trained over, under Gamaliel, he was a true Jew in every way, but he was educated in the Gentile culture. See, the disciples weren't up to that. They were just a bunch of fishermen and a tax collector. They weren't ready. They didn't have the techniques and the backgrounds to deal with that, to build the bridges. They just couldn't do it. They didn't understand it. And thirdly, the reason that he sent them only to the Jews was because of a point of attack point of attack. Any commander in any military knows that you can't do everything at one time. You just can't. You can't be like the guy who jumped on his horse and ran off madly in all directions. It doesn't work. You have to have specifics. And the possibilities were buried here, so Jesus gave the disciples a specific target. He says, just do this. Go to Galilee. Go to the Jews, to the lost house of the, of the sheep of the house of Israel. And that, that phrase, the lost sheep of the house of Israel, simply refer to the Jews. You compare it with Matthew chapter 9, verse 36, you see that. It's all a multitude of people, sheep without a shepherd. He says, go, my people, go to my people Israel. They're the ones to whom the promises were originally given. They're the ones with whom you can communicate. You have an audience. They'll, they'll be receptive. Go to them. And the Lord himself reflects to them what was in his own specific ministry. Maybe you never thought about this, but do you realize that the Lord himself never went to the Gentiles? Specifically? His ministry was almost exclusive to the Jews. In Matthew 15, 24, he says, I am not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. They were his focus. The Gentile world would come after him. And I think sometimes people in ministry, any kind of ministry, you get really frustrated if you don't have a clear objective. 
can be easily diverted. I had a lady yesterday on the on a, a program, religious program. She was standing up in front of this huge church, and she was saying, "Yes, I have this education." And she's going to be one of the co-teachers there at this big church. And she said, "I have this education. Just know, you know, the Lord called me to missions, and you know, and I prepared all my life to be a medical missionary." And and then they offered me this position. Huh? <laughs> I just thought, "Huh? I wonder what happened." Was she comfortable there? What, what happened? I don't know. So many times people will call people to do something and they, they don't heed it. They won't do it. They don't want to sacrifice. And sometimes you have to have that clear objective. I think part of effective ministry is having that clear objective. Know your gifts. Know what God has equipped you to do. Know what God has called you to do. Well, but I do, I kind of multitask or kind of a person. I do a lot of different stuff, okay? And sometimes, you know, my wife or others will say, you know, you're doing too much. You're doing, you know, and, and, and the way I look at it is this, okay? Over anything else, God has called me to be faithful to come here on Sunday and teach the Word of God. That's what He's called me to do, without a doubt. You can take everything else away and, and do just one thing, and that's, I'm, content with that. Alright? And some people, that's how it works for them. That's all they do. They don't do anything else. That's, they just study 90 hours a week and preach a sermon on Sunday. I'm not that way, personally. I just, I, I'm not gifted that way. I like to do other things. I like to work with my hands. I like to do a lot of different things. My mind doesn't think that way. But, if there ever come a time when this time on Sunday morning is suffering because I'm doing so many other things, then we can talk. <laughs> then we got a problem. Because I've lost my perspective. I've lost what God has called me to do. I mean, in a church this size, obviously you're going to be doing multiple things. That's just the way it works. And I'm okay with that. But I still have that clear objective in my heart that, you know what, my primary task here is to edify the, the church of God through the teaching of His Word and edifying His saints. And I try to do that to the best of my ability within the, the narrow <laughs> giftings that God has given me, intellectually and otherwise. So we have to have a clear objective. We have to know what we're called to do. So many times we don't need to worry about, you know, the church growth and all this stuff. I, I'm a firm believer that if I take care of the depth of my ministry and the Word of God and teaching people faithfully, He'll take care of the breadth of it. And if God wants 300 people here, if God wants 30 people here, if God wants 3,000 people here, that's His business, it's not mine. So I'm just going to focus on what God has called me to do. And I pray that uh, as we see His grace, we can do that. Third principle, we close here this morning. I'm going to close with this one. But effective ministry involves a clear message. And this is where, unfortunately, a lot of churches have missed it today. Not only a central objective, but you have to have a clear message. Um, when I was listening to uh, uh, this religious program yesterday, they were kind of revamping their ministry. And they said, it's a brand new day for such and such ministry. And this lady got up and she said, you know, I'll just have you to know that we're going to go back to what this church was founded on. And we will be teaching faithfully every week. 
positive thinking, you know, and all this other stuff. And I just thought, what? You missed it. You missed it. Totally missed it. And, and I thought, you know, that's, that's it. The mixed up message. I mean, if, if, you, if you don't get anything out of this morning's message, please take this home with you this morning. Because you're a sinner and you need the grace of God in your life to be saved from a place called hell that's eternity without God. The only way that you can be saved is through Christ. I mean, that's basically our message. Very clear. But we get it all mixed up. We get, we get things all confused today because we get involved in all sorts of other things. I want you to look at this slide and tell me what you see. Not a whole lot. And watch what happens. That's our message for you. All that other stuff is window dressing. Our message has to be Christ. It has to be Christ. When we start mixing in all these other theological things, and I'm a big proponent of theology. We, trust me, know what we believe here, and we teach it wholeheartedly. Delve into the political realm, and you're going to boycott this. Christ just gets lost. Being Baptist or Presbyterian or Lutheran or Catholic or Pentecostal or Charismatic or whatever never saved anybody. What saves them is Christ. And we need to remember what our message is. The central message, as he says here in Matthew 10, is what? Go and preach, say the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. You say, that's the whole sermon? Basically. (laughs) Where's the rest of it? That's enough. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. So next time you open your mouth and you want to witness, make sure you're not talking about man's projects, but you're talking about God's projects. You're talking about God's salvation. Preach the kingdom. The rule and reign of God, that heaven has come down to earth through Christ. We can see the kingdom of heaven in three ways. First of all, in conversion, when someone comes to Christ, when they realize they're lost without Christ in their sin, they need Christ and they cry out to Him and He saves them. They enter the kingdom, the Bible says. He transforms them. He changes them. He moves them from the the darkness to the light. Secondly, we can see it in consecration. When we live out the kingdom, the book of Romans, Paul tells us that the kingdom is not meat or drink, but righteousness, peace, joy, and the Holy Spirit. So when you leave these four walls, what are people seeing in your life? If you're claiming to be a Christian. And then lastly, in consummation, when the kingdom of earth, or the kingdom of heaven, eventually comes to earth during the millennium. See, until that time, we're called to preach the kingdom. Jesus taught his disciples nothing but that. And what does that mean? It means the principles that God rules in your life, that he is the Lord, that that we're not just out here doing our own thing. 
Even after his resurrection, Acts 1 says that Jesus taught them things pertaining to the kingdom for 40 days. See, it gets confusing for people today because when they listen to preachers, they haven't got a clue what the message is. Because preachers are preaching all sorts of stuff. Five happy keys to having a happy home. All sorts of stuff. It has nothing to do, really, with the Word of God. It might be helpful, but that's about it. We have to remember to tell people about Jesus Christ. Don't let Him get lost with all this other garbage that we throw in the arena. Because Satan's not stupid. The best way to render the gospel to no effect is to make sure that no one knows what it is. No one hears it. It's the message that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That it's available to anybody. To every person who's willing to yield their heart, to bow their heart to the rule and reign of Christ in their heart, in their lives now. That's our message. Don't get sidetracked over into politics. I mean, I love to talk about politics. Talking about politics the other day, and blood pressure starts to go up, you know. Somebody said, we don't even have a TV, and we don't listen to news anymore. Man, it's just so much more peaceful. I mean, it, it kind of makes sense. It really does. But you want to be focused. I mean, wouldn't you wish that every time a Christian opened their mouth, something came out about the kingdom? So let's talk about God's rule. Let's talk about His kingdom. That's what God wants us to do. That's the call that He's laid upon us. So He's commanded us with a divine commission, a central objective, and a clear message. Next week, Dave Siegel, I'm getting to the best point of all. So make sure you come back and, and find out what the next principle is. Let's bow in a word of prayer. Father, we thank You for Your Word this morning. Lord, You're so gracious and good to us. We thank You for that. Thank you, Lord, that you use us at all, any of us. Father, we're so unqualified. Thank you for the example that you gave us in these 12 and how you sent them out, how you used them to change the world. Lord, we're really the fruit of their labor. We wouldn't be here if it wasn't for them. Generations later, because they obeyed you. And Lord, that's really what this relationship comes down to. You set everything else aside. It comes down to being obedient to call the gospel. Lord, help us to focus on that ministry that you've gifted us to do. Help us to make our message clear so that people will come to you in faith, forsaking these things, and receiving the goodness of God and salvation through Christ. I pray for those. If there's anyone here who's yet to put their faith and trust in Christ, that they would cry out to you even now in the quietness of this moment. Lord, be merciful to me, Father. The prayer that God will answer. Thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.